we come now to the scripture, let me ask you, please, uh, to pray with me. Um, Our Father in heaven, uh, we come now to this word which you say to us is a light uh, to our feet. It's a way that we can see what the next step is for us. So we pray, God, that you would open our eyes to it and enable us to really see the truth here, the light of the glory of God in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. This we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Turn, please, to Isaiah and chapter 9, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 9, please. I want to read verses 1 through 7. Isaiah and chapter 9, please. This is the word of the Lord. But there will be no gloom for her who who was in anguish, In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You've multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they, di- as, as, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Even the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as in the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this day forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And then together we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. This is Advent, first Sunday of Advent. It's the beginning of what we call the Christian year. As the church, we don't mark out our calendar beginning on January 1. We do that, of course, as people who live in the world. But in the church, we think about the year beginning on the first Sunday of Advent because we, we mark our lives, really, by the life of Christ. An Advent is this anticipation, an Advent is anticipation waiting for this one to come. We think back of those who were waiting before the first Advent of Jesus, even as we wait for his second Advent, even now. And then Christmas, this very one, the word became flesh made, is dwelling among us. Uh, and then a time of Christmas tide, this time after Christmas too, when a season that many of us aren't familiar with called Epiphany happens. And during Epiphany, the question is asked, well, do you see it? Do you see who this one really is, this one who was, who was born? And after Epiphany comes Lent as we see this very one, Jesus, live out his life in, in humility and suffering for us. And then comes Holy Week. We have Palm Sunday where Jesus is hailed as a king. And then we move through that week on that Thursday, Monday, Thursday. We call it the day that the evening that Jesus met with his disciples and gave them the mandate that they were to love one another as he had loved them. And, and, and he begins to tell them about what's to come, his, his crucifixion. And then Good Friday. 
And then Sunday, Easter, and, and the great resurrection of our Lord Jesus. He died on that Friday for the sins of sinners, but he rose to newness of life so that all who would believe in him would have life themselves. And, 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 and then Easter tied this time of, of thinking through all the appearances of Jesus. He's really alive. This Jesus is really alive. He really did rise uh, from the dead. And then he ascends. Uh, he ascends to rule and to reign. And then Pentecost comes where the Holy Spirit comes upon his people and is here to gather his church for Jesus' sake. And then this long season of Trinity, it's called, where we think through the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in our life together in the very presence of God. This is Advent today. And as we come upon Advent, we come to this first Sunday. And there's a number of different ways that the church has marked out these Advent Sundays over the years. We've done a few different ones ourselves. This one, I'm back to this sense of the prophets, the hope of the prophets on, on week one. And, and there are a number of different prophetic passages, especially in the Old Testament, I could find that could point us to the coming of this one. And, 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 and yet it's Isaiah that very often comes to mind so much so that the early church father, Jerome, referred to Isaiah as Isaiah the evangelist because he's the one who, who points so much to this one who is to come. And, and he speaks of his, his first advent. Uh, Isaiah does in, in chapter 7, he talks about this virgin that will give birth to a child. And then we read in Matthew chapter 1 about this virgin who gave birth to a child. Uh, Emmanuel, he's called God. With us, you may call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. God with us, Jesus, to save us from our, our sins. Uh, we see then in chapter 53, one of the, we call the suffering servant songs of Isaiah. As he, in various passages, four of them, he, he brings to light the suffering of this one who is to come. Isaiah 53 is the one that is most well known to us because it speaks of all we like sheep have gone astray to one according to his own way. But he laid our iniquity upon him. And we see it in the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus. So he speaks of his first advent there. And then in Isaiah 61, we could, we could go to that passage. That's the passage that Jesus quoted about himself when he was in his hometown, Nazareth. He walked into the, in, in, into the synagogue and he quoted Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. They rejected him. But we see it uh, in Isaiah. He speaks of the second advent as well. In chapter 11 of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah speaks about this great peace that is to come. You know, that wonderful passage where the lion lays down with the lamb and the little child plays over the adder's den, that snake. But everything is in such great peace. You see this wonderful poetic imagery of, of, of this peace that he will bring. And it will come in Isaiah 65. He speaks of the new heavens and the new earth, you see. And so Isaiah speaks of the first advent and the second advent as well. But I must say to you that when I think of prophets and I think of, 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 of the first Sunday of Advent, it's this passage that comes to mind, especially in verse 2 of chapter 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Now, personal confessions. The, the reason that comes to mind is that 
you know, very often people say as Christmas approaches, oh, I'm not ready for this. It's coming so fast. I, I, you know, it's, it's here and, and I'm, I, I don't feel Christmassy. Well, that's what Advent's for, by the way. Uh, so it comes upon us, not when we're feeling like it, but, but to remind us of the incarnation. And we begin to make preparation for it. But one of the things, and this is, I, I confess to you, each year this happens to me. I'm a bit nerdy, I confess. But each year this happens to me because the days are getting shorter. The darkness is increasing. I recognize it because I, I spend a lot of pretty early mornings meeting with people. Uh, and, and, and what I realize now is, is when I'm meeting, uh, it's dark. In the summer, it's light, but now it's dark. And something as this darkness comes upon me. I begin to think about there were people who lived in darkness, but... A great light came upon them. Or late in the afternoon, you know. I don't usually leave the office here until 5.30ish or so. But, but, but now I'm thinking, I'm late. And I look outside and it's dark. I think I should be going home. And it's like only 5 o'clock and I'm not quite ready. This really hit me when we lived in New England. New England Boston is a strange place. At this time of year, it gets dark about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And so when I was in seminary and I was, uh, this time of year happened and I was sitting in the library and I looked out and I said, oh no, it's dark. I should have been home an hour ago. Karen's going to be worried about me. And then I went home and it was like 4.15. She said, what are you doing home? I'm worried that you're home so soon. Uh, but this sense of darkness, you see, and, and it reminds me of this, this passage that the people who walked in darkness have seen great lights. And what's fascinating is that they hadn't. When Isaiah wrote this, they hadn't seen a great light. But, but he's a prophet, you see. And when the prophets write, they often write about future events in the past tense. You notice, he says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them has light shown, but it hadn't. They were still in darkness. But in Isaiah's mind, what he was understanding, what he was seeing, is that this is a done deal because this is what God promises. And if God has promised it, then it's, it's as good as done. It isn't that it was going to happen soon. It isn't going to, but it would happen. And it would certainly happen. And so as he looks out, he sees it. He sees it already done, the people who walk in darkness. Because you see, the people in his day were living in darkness. At the end of chapter 8, just bump your eyes up uh, 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 from uh, chapter 9, verse 1, into chapter 8, verse 22. He says, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Just a bit of history, very quickly. You remember um, that Israel had been split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, right? The northern kingdom to the north, Southern kingdom to the south. The northern kingdom, ten tribes. The southern kingdom, two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. The northern kingdom would, from that time on, generally be referred to as Israel. The southern kingdom generally referred to as Judah. Here we have a situation in Judah. In, in Isaiah chapter 6, the king Uzziah died. And Uzziah was a strong king. And Uzziah had, 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 had strengthened the southern kingdom, had strengthened Judah. He didn't end necessarily well, but, but he had strengthened the southern uh, kingdom, so that other kingdoms around the southern kingdom 
uh, were of Judah were, were, were rather afraid. He was, it was, could be a very strong place. But then King Uzziah died. And it created some anxiety and fear. His son Jotham became king. Then his son after him, Ahaz, became king. And so we pick this up then. And, and Ahaz is king. And what's happening now is that his relatives to the north, the northern kingdom, and the Syrians have joined together so that they could protect themselves against this up-and-coming mighty kingdom, the Assyrians. And they've joined together. And what they're planning to do and begin to do is have an assault against Judah to take over Judah and put on the throne that was to have someone from the house of David on the throne in Judah to put one of their own people on the throne in Judah. Well, Isaiah comes to Ahaz and he says, don't worry about this. Don't be afraid of them. Fear God. He'll be with you. In fact, if you don't believe me, ask him for a sign. In fact, fact, he says to you, ask him for a sign. And and Ahaz says, no, no, I'm not going to ask him for a sign. He wasn't being humble there. He was just saying, I don't want to know what God is going to do. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to make an alliance with the Assyrians and they'll come and they'll help me and they'll protect me. And I say, no, 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 no. Don't do that. You have nothing to worry about. Syria and the northern kingdom, they'll fall. They're not your enemies. They'll be taken care of. Don't worry about them. Trust God, fear God. They said, no, I'm going to make this alliance. And then Isaiah says, well, I'll, God will give you a sign anyway. A virgin will give birth to a child, blah, blah, blah. So we know that ultimately fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. But you see, because Ahaz was trusting, not in God, but in himself, really, his own wisdom and making plans with this other nation and trusting this other nation, that God says, okay, here's the situation the northern kingdom and you are in darkness. Now, there'll be a remnant. There'll be a group of believers. But still, they'll live in the effects of this, of this darkness. So darkness, you see, had, had covered the land. Now, when you think of darkness, especially in the Bible, what comes to your mind? I mean, can you feel it? I, I mean, when I think of darkness, I can feel it. I, it's dark. Right? There's no light. You can't see anything. It's really dark. Not dark like we have now. Nothing's really dark anymore, right? You turn out all your lights in your house, and what do you see? A bunch of little green dots everywhere, right? You see all kinds of things. We have light pollution. You can't even see the stars half the time in certain parts of the, parts of the world and parts of the country. And so, so we don't... But, Dark, dark. Have you ever been to a place that's dark, dark in a cave? Have you been in a closet? Nothing there. No lights. Dark, dark. You can't see your hand in front of your face. There's a certain amount of coldness there. Dark. A certain amount of fear there. Dark. And in, in the scripture, darkness refers very often to, to evil and to ignorance. It, it's dark. Uh, for instance, in Isaiah chapter 5, in verse 20, Isaiah says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That is darkness, evil, light, good in that sense. In fact, when Jesus comes on the scene, he speaks to them about this 
and about the condition of, of our own hearts. And in John chapter 3, verse 19, uh, we read this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. Paul uses this same kind of imagery in, in uh, Romans in chapter 13, verse 12. He says, the night is far gone and the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision to the flesh to gratify its desires. When, when there's darkness, you see, there's this sense of anything goes. It's, it's that idiom of what men, what people do under the guise of darkness, right? Nobody can see. What are you going to do? Uh, people are afraid because they say, then the worst of us, as opposed to the best, the worst of us comes out at times like that. And he says, you're in darkness. There's no real hope. And there's an ignorance here as well. And when you're in the dark, you can't really, can't really see. You can't really see what's there. You can't really see what's true. If you're driving down the road and it's really dark and the, the moon isn't out, if you will, and casting some sense of reflective light here, uh, and, and your headlights go out and, and you're out on a country road and it's really dark, you're in great danger, right? Because you can't see, because you can't know, you can't fix it. You don't know how to get along. And that's this sense of ignorance. We, we're in this situation, we're in this darkness, and we can't really change anything. We have no hope. You, you get a sense of darkness. Even in the world in which we live, we, we, we see it. It's, it's that expression that is used in the judges that Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And we see what that leads to. We see the injustice that happens. We see the wars that happen. We see the abuse that happens. We see families split and blow up. We see friendships demised. We see jealousy and anger bitterness against one another. We, we see the darkness in the world in which we live. We read about it all the time. And, and we've been reading about it all the time since the beginning, if you will, this kind of living in darkness and what comes out of it. And yet still we haven't fixed it in any way, at least shape or form. Well, we've made advances in a number of different ways, but, but still this kind of darkness, this ignorance, this sense of hopelessness, if you will, that, that really exists and how are we going to fix it? We read about this in Ephesians in chapter 4, not too long ago. Verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of, of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them Due to the hardness of your heart, there's this sense of darkness, you see. It's like, where's God? Darkness. You see, 
this sense of hopelessness, one of the, the lies of the way the world celebrates Christmas, what we call a secular celebration of Christmas. When the world celebrates Christmas, it goes something like this. For this time of year, maybe even on this one day, we can be our best selves. We can give to help others. We can get along with each other. Even Uncle Joe at Christmas dinner, right? For just this time, we can, be our, we can, we can do all these things. This would be great. We can even have ceasefires on Christmas Day. We won't even bomb each other on this one day, our best day, and, and see, we can show how good we can be. And that's why this tagline always comes uh, in, uh, let's have Christmas every day, right? But we don't. Those are all good things, by the way, to do, but, but it, doesn't, it doesn't last. Oh, it might last for the hour, it might last for the day, it might last for a bit of the season in, in us, but it simply doesn't last why? Because we can't fix this, this darkness. And so in order to come to grips with real Christmas, in order to come to grips with that, through the Advent season, we have to come to grips with this darkness. Uh, Tim Keller, in a sermon on the meaning of Christmas, put it like this. He said, Christmas, therefore, is the most unsentimental, realistic way of looking at life. It doesn't say, cheer up, if we all pull together, we can make the world a better place. The Bible never counsels indifference to the forces of darkness, only resistance. But it supports no illusions that we can defeat them ourselves. Christianity doesn't agree with the optimistic thinkers who say, we can fix things if we try hard enough. Nor does it agree with the pessimists who see only a, uh, a dystopian future. The message of Christianity is, instead, things are really this bad. And we can't heal or save ourselves. Christmas message is that on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Notice that it doesn't say from the world a light has sprung, but upon the world a light has dawned. It's come from the outside. There is light outside of this world. And Jesus has brought that light to us. Jesus has brought that light to us. Uh, indeed, yes, he has. How are we going to solve this, these issues? Um, sometime last semester at the Oriad Center on one Sunday evening, we were looking at various uh, TED Talks uh, and analyzing them. And one of the TED Talks was actually done by Billy Graham about 20 years ago. And he was speaking to a group of scientists and, and experts in technology. And he was rather surprised to be there. He was even 20 years ago older, and he was saying, I don't know why you need a man of religion at this, uh, at this conference, but, but here I am. And he congratulated the scientists and technological experts on all the great advancements that had been made in science and technology. And he says, but, but I want to challenge you with this. Here's the, the issue. Here's the problem. Here's what you haven't been able to yet get at. <coughs> the problem of evil and the fact that we still die. Those issues, you see, are spiritual. And they're related to our relationship 
or estrangement from God. In a sense, he was saying, you can't solve this one. We can't solve this one. It has to come from the outside. And that's the message of Christmas. You see, it has come from the outside. That's the message here that we see in Advent. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. A great light for us, we would say now, for them and for us is coming Christ and is coming in him. Notice what he says, verse 1. He says, there'll be no gloom for her who is in anguish. And so something great is happening. They were, they were in anguish, but, but that's going to go away. In the former time, he brought contempt into the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea. He did indeed. Do you remember when Jesus came on the scene? Matthew quotes this particular passage, verse 12 of Matthew 4. It says, now when he heard, that is Jesus, that John had been arrested, John the Baptist, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light for those who dwelling in the region in the shadow of death. On them, a light has dawned. This light is Jesus. And when it was the darkest, the places where it was the darkest in Zebulun and Naphtali, now the contempt would be gone. Glory would come to that place. And notice verse 3 says, You multiplied the nation. Uh, That is to say, there will be many multitudes will come into this light. You've increased its joy. They will rejoice uh, with you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. He said, this this great joy will be like the greatest joy you now know. The greatest joy you now know is when the harvest is in and you have everything that you need. Or when the battle's been won and you've got all the spoil and all of that. That's the greatest joy you know. So it'll be like that, but it'll be even greater than that. Greater than the joy you'll ever know. It'll be like this for the, for the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. Remember in the days when you were enslaved in Egypt and you had no hope. You couldn't get out of that situation. No matter how hard you tried, you couldn't free yourself from that bondage. How did the freedom come? Not from within, but from without. God came and rescued you. And he said, you have broken as on the day of Midian. You remember that, that, that Gideon had to fight the Midianites. And he started out with 32,000 men fighting 135,000, which wasn't very good odds anyway. But then the Lord whittled that down to 300. And you said, well, that's darkness. How? There's no hope there. He said, oh, but he won, didn't he? How? It was pretty clear. It wasn't that 300 Men were better than 135,000. But God came in. But God came in. He said, it'll be like that. You can't solve this. But God can. This light, you see, this light will come. Now notice that this light isn't some ethereal, some sort of hyper-spiritual, some abstract um, inner glow. 
It's a person. This light is a person. This, this light is a child born, a son given. And you know, in Isaiah 9, that there was to be a child born of a virgin who was going to be the one who was going to be that one who would save. And so this child born of a virgin, this child is named Emmanuel, who is God with us. This, this child is born, he's given, he's a gift. He comes not from within, but from the outside of us. See, they kept trying to solve all of their problems from the inside by uh, uh, looking to their own wisdom. But God says, no, 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 it'll never work. You'll never solve it that way. Your hope comes from me. Your hope comes from outside of you. And so this hope is in this, this child, this very one who is to come the light we spoke of this light early in our service this morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John 1. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not, was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not overcome. It. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. You see, the very light, he would come, and, and he would do what Light does, which is bring life. Can't grow anything in the dark. For something to live, it must have, it must have life. It must have light. And not only that, light light reveals, light illuminates, light light shows what's really there, what's really, what's really true. I mean, every parent knows that, that if your child cries in the middle of the night and you get up and you finally get your kid back to sleep and you put your child in bed, you have one great obstacle to overcome. You have to walk through the darkness back to your bed. And you have to miss all the squeaky toys. And you have to miss that Lego piece that if you step on it, will cause more pain than you've experienced in a long time. But you can't wake up your child. And what you long for is what? Light. I need to be able to see, but again, I need to be able to see through this, you see. He says, here's this light. He'll show you what's true about yourself. He'll show you what's true about God. He'll show you what's true about life. You can really see it. We read it in John 1, uh, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he will make him known. You'll, you'll be able to see it, you see. Uh, not, but in the eyes, if you will, of your mind and your heart, you'll see it, you'll understand it. You'll have true, true knowledge of God. And this light, you see, enables us to have joy. We know that for people who live in darkness, one of the greatest troubles is Depression. Too much darkness brings depression. Too much darkness is difficult to have joy. And then light comes and, and, and you can see it again. And, then, and, you, and you know it's true, what's really there. And you can see and, and it brings, brings real joy. This morning I got here early and, uh, and I came through uh, from my office. I was going to come through the gym into here. And at that point the doors weren't closed to say don't come in here which I would have obeyed, but it was dark. 
And so I was really dark, and so I was about quarter to five, actually. And so I walked in, and, and, and I didn't see anything. I turned on the light, and I'm so glad I did. It would have been disastrous because I could have ruined all these wonderfully, beautifully decorated tables <laughs> that are getting ready for the Christmas Advent tea. And uh, that would have been really hard to explain, you see. But I turned on the light, and it brought me great joy. Because I saw these delightful tables and I began to realize what's going to happen this afternoon as the women of the church gather in this wonderful time together. And it brought me joy. Light, you see, enables us to see. And it even enables us to see that which is good so that we can have, we can have joy. And so this Jesus comes, you see, to bring us life. It's truth. And that we might have real joy even now in the midst of darkness. Even now, in the midst of a world that still is in darkness. And can we have confidence this is true? He says, yeah, look at his name. Wonderful counselor. It means he's a wonder of a counselor. He has great wisdom, supernatural wisdom. He has the very wisdom of God. He knows exactly what needs to be done. He knows exactly what needs to be done. We don't know what needs to be done, but he knows exactly what needs to be done. He knows, because he's as the very wisdom of God, he knows that in his coming and in his dying, and that he will bring life to all who believe in him. He knows that's what needs to be done. He knows the real problem is that we're estranged from God. He knows the real solution is for us to be reconciled to God. And he knows the only way for that to happen, uh, for an unholy people to be reconciled to a holy God, as we sang earlier this morning, is, is for the Holy One to take the guilt of the sin of sinners upon himself and pay the penalty for our sin so that we might be forgiven. And that he, this Holy One, would live in such a way for us that his righteousness would be given to us. So that we, the unrighteous, can receive a righteousness from the outside. So that we can stand righteous in the presence of God and be reconciled to him, you see. He says, that's what needs to happen. And I know that's what needs to happen. And I can bring that about because not only do I know it, but I'm the mighty God. I'm the Lord of hosts. I can conquer sin and death. I can do it. Because I'm mighty God. Everlasting Father. Now that isn't a confusion of father and son. The expression everlasting father refers to the fact that he'll be king. Old Testament kings were referred to as fathers. We use that expression even in our own time. We talk about George Washington as being the father of our country. But this sense of being the everlasting father. I'll always be ruling and reigning over you. You don't have to worry about it. Uh, no one's stronger than I, Jesus would say. So I'm ruling and reigning. I'm the head over all things, as we read in Ephesians chapter 1 some time ago. I'm the head. He's the head over all things for the church so that his church would be protected, his church would be multiplied, his church would flourish. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. He's the Prince of Peace. His rule, you see, will be a rule of, of 
peace. Meaning, by way of the cross, which he knows is the only way, peace will come between us and God and between us and each other. He's the Prince of Peace. He says, of the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end on the throne of David over, over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That is to say, Isaiah can say, I can speak in the past tense. Oh, it hasn't happened yet. But I know that it will. Because of the zeal, the passion, the desire, the heart of God. He'll bring this. He'll bring this to pass. And we mustn't forget this about Christmas. Because you see, the real Christmas confronts us. We can't just pat Jesus on the head and say, you're a really nice guy. I really like you. He won't let us do that, you see. He says, no, 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 no. I've come because you're in darkness. I've come to bring you out of that darkness. And I'm your only hope. I'm your only way. You should worship me. You should bow before me. You should receive me. You should trust me wholeheartedly. This is what makes Christianity utterly different from any other we could say it this way, religion makes, us, makes it utterly different. Why? Because Jesus, the incarnate enfleshment, the incarnate Son of God, has come and dwelt among us and given himself for us. Uh, 1899. Uh, a man by the name of Sudar Singh was born in India. And he was born into a very affluent family. And in his growing up years, learned to hate Christianity. He hated Christianity because it was the religion of the ones who had come in and invaded, if you will, the Brits, invaded his country and took them over. And so he hated, he started to hate the Christian faith. In fact, at one point, early in his teens, he took a copy of one of the Gospels and he burned it publicly just to say, this is how much I hate this Christian faith. And then, astoundingly, later in his teens, he became a Christian. He became a follower of Jesus. And, and when he did, he, he was ostracized by his family. He lost his position. He lost his wealth. He lost all of that. And he began an itinerant ministry uh, throughout India, Nepal, Tibet. And in those days, particularly, he was often attacked. We don't know how he died, but the suspicion is he died a violent death because of the work to which God had, had called him. There was an occasion where he was addressing um, a group of students at a Hindu college. And one of the students asked him, he said, what was there about Christianity? What is there about Christianity that, that caused you uh, to become a Christian? And he said, Christ. And the students said, no, no, you don't understand me. What doctrine, what truth, what, 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 what new understanding was brought to you by Christianity that caused you to, to become a Christian? And he said, no, no. The, the thing that drew me was Christ himself, who he is. You see, you can take Muhammad out of Islam and still have Islam. Just find yourself another prophet who could say what he said. 
You think Buddha out of Buddhism, and to love Buddhism, all you have to do is find another Buddha. You can do that down the line, but if you take Jesus out of Christianity, we haven't got anything at all. He's it. That's why he says, I'm the light. That's why we say he's our only hope. Because there isn't anyone else who's the wonderful counselor. Who knows exactly what needs to be done and can do it. He isn't, there isn't anyone who is the mighty God, the one who can do it. There isn't anyone who rules and reigns as everlasting father. There isn't anyone who brings peace. Reconciliation between us and God. In order to embrace Christmas, we must first embrace darkness. So we can rejoice that the light has really come. (laughs) That the light has come. And here we see it. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread after giving thanks. He broke it and gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. It's a sense in which you could say, I I know exactly what needs to be done here. And and I can do it. I can accomplish it. And I, I will accomplish it. And as I accomplish it, you see, what will happen is to be reconciled to God. In the same way he took the cup and after giving thanks again, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What are we declaring? We're declaring that he's come. That we, our lives, were darkness, hopeless. But he's the light. And he comes, you see. He not only shows us the way, but he is the way. He not only tells us the truth, he is the truth. He not only gives life, but he is life. And we know that we can come to the Father through him to be reconciled. He's the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. He's the everlasting Father. He's the Prince of Peace. Don't trust yourself. Don't trust anyone else. Trust me. That's what he says. Trust me. Believe me. Trust me. You'll have life. Let's pray. Father, pray now that you'll take this bread and this juice and set it aside and apart in such a way that we'll know we're in the very presence of this one who is our wonderful counselor, who is the mighty God, who is the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, who's the light, who's come to give hope in the midst of this darkness. So we pray now that you would enable us to Come to this table 
and leave it with a profound and certain hope. The very hope of eternal life. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.